Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com prenatal. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, before this episode starts, I want to talk about some pretty cool news. Okie Investigations now has its own website. It's truecrime.blog. And it is a running blog for crime stories and for this show. So if you're a true crime buff and you want to see some cool things that we gathered while researching each show, including a like timeline of events that we put together, uh, newspaper clippings, court documents, and much, much more, come check us out at truecrime.blog. Now, let's talk about some of Oklahoma's darker history uh, let's step back to 1934. Now, through the course of this story, I want you guys to ask yourselves, can a murderer, a convicted murderer, redeem himself? Is there a possible way in your mind, can somebody that's committed a heinous murder redeem themselves in your eyes? Might be possible. Let's listen to the story. Now, it's just after Thanksgiving Day, and Phil Kinammer and John Gorell are driving down the road, and suddenly a scuffle breaks out. And when it's all said and done, Kinammer has killed his friend with two shots to the head. Now, what this made this such a big crime is that both Kinammer and Gorell were a part of a society called the High Hat Club. And what they were is a elitist society of Oklahoma's wealthiest kids. Their parents had achieved something great, and they were kind of spoiled and given everything. Uh, Phil Kinammer, his father was a prominent judge, a federal judge in Tulsa. John Gorell's father was a prominent surgeon. Other members in the club included sons of oil tycoons, and major businessmen of the time. Now, according to Ken Amber's defense, he had to kill Gorell because Gorell was going to be going after the woman he loved, Miss Virginia Wilcox. She was the daughter of a major oil tycoon here in Oklahoma, Homer Wilcox. Now, Virginia was no stranger to Ken Ammer. They had dated a few times. By all accounts, Phil Ken Ammer was just enamored with her. He was just gaga for this girl. Now, apparently a lot of the kids in this hi-hat club were no um, strangers to committing uh, some major crimes. They were planning on kidnapping Virginia Wilcox 
in order to extort some money from her father. Garel was the mastermind of this plot, and Kidammer did everything he could, according to his defense anyways, that he he tried to steer Garel into other directions, different types of extortion, different types of crimes that they could maybe make some money one of the things that they thought about doing was maybe selling beer and sandwiches um just to kind of like a lemonade stand i guess but they were going to uh, kind of kind of uh do that to to earn a little bit extra you know some extra money the other plan was they were going to strong arm a lot of the businesses in the area uh, get some protection money um maybe uh, one of the things was they were going to send some wealthy people in Oklahoma a letter stating, you know, that we don't have any children you have, and if you would like to protect their lives, uh, send us $20,000. And there was evidence of that. One of the things that they did was they gave the letter to Ken Ammer to mail, and he never mailed it for whatever reason. Um, but every time one of these plans failed, they ultimately went back to this idea of kidnapping Virginia Wilcox. It was this notion that kept driving Phil Kinhammer closer and closer to committing this murder. So finally, just after Thanksgiving, 1934, Phil Kinhammer has had enough of this. He's, according to this defense, is that he, this is the point where he has a mental breakdown and he decides he's going to go to Kansas City where Grell is studying dentistry and he planned on ending his life. One of the prosecution's major witnesses was Floyd Huff who said, Ken Emmer asked me if I knew why he came to Kansas City. I told him I did not and asked him why. And he said, I came up to kill Grell. I looked at the boy and said you do not believe me he told me his intentions were to rent an airplane and that they were going to take a ride above the clouds and when they got up there he was going to hit Gorel over the head and he was going to jump out in a parachute i guess and the only way he could have gone is if he intended to live now this was an important statement for the prosecution because in many ways this proved that there was premeditation in this crime. This was not something that was done in the heat of passion or was part of some insane mind's thoughts. But this was completely unlike Kinammer, and they were using these statements as proof that Kinammer had gone insane at this time and had no control over what he was doing. The plot to kill... Gorel was quickly foiled by the fact that there was no airplanes to rent. So that was out the window. So it wasn't long after Ken Ammer just decided he's just going to go for it. He's going to kill him with a knife. So that night, Ken Ammer shows up with a knife at the local tavern and pretty much boasts to anybody that would listen that he's looking for Gorel and he's going to murder him. The other high hatters were there. They were able to come over and uh, get the knife away from Ken Ammer. And Ken Ammer was reported to have said, Are you going to send me out there with these bare hands to kill Garel? I said, Yes, if that's the way you want to go, Phil. And he walked and just left at the tavern at that time. 
Now, it wasn't long after that that Kim Ember finally did find Garel. They got in a car. As they're driving down the road, Garel pulls out a pistol, apparently attempting to kill Kinammer, who has been boasting to everybody he's going to kill him. Kinammer manages to wrestle the pistol away and then shoots Garel twice in the head. Now, I honestly don't believe Garel brought the pistol into play. I think that this was just Kinammer's. Um, it was his attempt at doing a self-defense uh, kind of play here uh, i had to kill him because he was going to kill me kind of thing so this whole trial comes to head pretty much the the jury had 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 a few options they could do murder one they could find him guilty of manslaughter if they believe that the crime was not premeditated or they could find him not guilty or not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury in this case didn't believe Ken Amber's story, and they found him guilty, but they did not convict him of murder one. What they did was they convicted him of just manslaughter. The judge in this case gave Ken Amber 25 years in prison. Now you might expect being the son of a prominent uh, federal judge might uh, get you a little bit of leniency or maybe make it easier to appeal things but that did not work in ken edward's case now i asked you at the beginning of the story can a man who is obviously a murderer redeem himself is there a way that he can redeem himself in your eyes where you can say this man lived a good life at least maybe for part of it well in 1944, we were in the midst of World War II, and Ken Ammer was given parole with the stipulation that he joined the Army. He got the opportunity, uh, finally, to jump out of airplanes when he jumped with the 13th Airborne, 460th Parachute Artillery Battalion. He died in France on August 14th, 1944. Now, I can't speak for everyone here, but I do feel like somebody that died protecting our country is a hero. And even though he made some questionable decisions in his life, I think as he grew older, he matured and found that there's some things more important than just his life. And yeah, he, he died for us. Now, does this make up for the fact that he killed Garel? No, it doesn't. But what I think it does show is that even somebody who is a murderer can change and do something important with their life. Now, what are your thoughts on this subject? If you'd like to leave me a message, go to anchor.fm forward slash Investigations. Then at the top of the page, you will see a message button. When you click that, you'll be able to record your own message um, and tell me, what do you think, uh, one way or the other, uh, can somebody redeem themselves that's a murderer, uh, even somebody that has served our country, perhaps, or perhaps somebody that's done their time and maybe just became a better person? Uh, let me know what you think. You can also connect to us at facebook.com forward slash Investigations. Thank you guys for listening, and I will see you guys next time. See ya. Now, knowing the main story this week is a little heavy, I wanted to find something a little light 
uh, for you guys to listen to for our Oklahoma history lesson. A little lighter than what we usually have on the show. Um, this one really caught my attention because it's it's very interesting. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. So, my question to you this week is, do you believe in karma? If someone does something awful, do they end up getting awful in return? Does somebody that does something good get something good in return? And as a prime example of karma, we're going to step back in our time machine and go all the way back to October 13th, 1912, in a little town called Peru, Oklahoma. Now, if you're wanting to visit Peru, Oklahoma... You're going to have to be a certified diver and, yeah, have some snorkeling gear or something because it's at the bottom of Keystone Lake right now. Now, there is a new Peru, Oklahoma, but it is not at the original location, obviously. So this article was found in the Daily Oklahoman. Awaiting identification here Saturday night is the body of the lone bandit who Sunday morning daringly walked into the state bank here, confronted the cashier with a gun, and forced him to hand over $2,000. The bandit was shot and killed while riding at breakneck speeds along a country road a few miles north of Peru. He was shot by H.C. Burke, a farmer whose horse the robber had stolen Friday night. The entire booty secured from the bank was found on the person of the dead man and restored to the bank. Cashier J.G. Danner of the bank was alone in the building when the robber, unmasked, walked in. He made no suspicious move until he appeared at the window with an ugly appearing revolver in his hand. The cashier, taken by surprise, made no resistance, and at the command of the bandit, handed over the money on the counter, approximately $2,000. The robber then turned and fled on the animal which he had stolen the night before. Mr. Burke was near the road at his home when he saw the robber approaching at a mad gallop, but he was not aware that he had just held up the bank. Recognizing the horse, he seized a shotgun and commanded the rider to halt. There was no response, and he fired. The first shot struck the man in the breast, killing him instantly. Finding the money on the body, Burke suspected robbery, and it wasn't long until he was notified that the man was wanted. The robbery at the bank was the third within the last three years' time, and the killing of this man formed the first apprehension of any of those robbers. You would think, at this time, this, uh, this bank might step up security a little bit, seeing that they've been robbed three times in less than three years. That's one a year. I mean, that might be worth security, uh, paying somebody to hang out with a gun. I don't know. Either way, let me know. Uh, if you uh, feel so inclined, go to anchor.fm forward slash Investigations. Uh, that is the central hub for our podcast. You could actually uh, leave us a message. It's, you can do an audio message, and we can actually play that over the air if you want. 
what I want to know is if you believe in karma, yes or no, and what is your reasoning behind it? In this particular case, I find it really interesting that uh, this guy, not only he goes out, he finds a horse and he steals it. Then he proceeds to go down the road to a bank the next day. He robs that bank, gets 2000 bucks, which back then, I mean, that's, that's quite a bit of money. Uh, he then jumps on the horse, takes off fast as he can, not even thinking anything about it. He rides back by the house that he stole the horse from. And to his unlucky, you know, I call it karma, I guess, but to his unlucky surprise, the owner of that horse saw him coming. He got a gun, came out, told him to stop. He should have stopped because that guy wasn't playing. He shot him, shot him dead. It's a pretty crazy story. Pretty, pretty, pretty nuts. And uh, I love these stories because there's so much of this in that that's in our history. Uh, it's just amazing to to stumble across these. Uh, left and right um but yeah i will actually post this article on our facebook page if you want to read it in full it's uh it's quite the entertaining read definitely check it out facebook.com forward slash oki investigations so i will see you guys next week i sincerely hope you enjoyed the show see you next time it's February 10th, 1979. Imagine, if you will, you're out for a drive with your spouse. You haven't seen your brother in a while and you decide to stop in for an unannounced visit. You pull up to his house and in the driveway is a car you don't recognize. Perhaps they already have visitors. You park your car, you walk up and knock on the front door and no one answers. You try the door handle and it's unlocked. As you walk into the home, you have no idea. You're leading yourself and your spouse to death's open arms. Scared to think how fragile life can be. Every decision we make could unknowingly be our last. It's scary enough to keep you up at night if you think about it too much. The couple was John and Roxy Seward, and their brutal murder would spark one of the craziest stories in Oklahoma's dark history. 68-year-old Delphia Warren and her husband, Del Warren, returned home around 4.30 p.m. As they pulled up in their driveway, they noticed something odd. A vehicle was in their driveway. Miss Warren thought it was her brother-in-law's car, but they weren't really too sure about it. They walked up to their front door, and then, as they opened it, they knew instantly that they had been robbed. The house was a mess and things were just tossed about carelessly. Wondering if the thieves were still in the house, Mr. Warren checked everything room by room. Miss Warren decided to wait outside and wait for her husband to finish. As time went on, she began to worry, had the robbers got to jump on him? But soon enough, her husband walked out the front door, pale and worried. He looked to his wife and told her someone's dead in the basement. Miss Warren thought of her brother-in-law. She again looked at the car in the driveway, but she still wasn't sure. They didn't re-enter the home. The police arrived shortly after, and when they went down to the basement, they found not one, but two bodies downstairs. 
When detectives informed Mr. and Mrs. Warren, Miss Warren rightfully feared for her brother-in-law and his wife. The couple who died were indeed the Warren's brother and sister-in-law. The news of this double murder spread quickly through law enforcement in the state. This burglary looks a lot like the one made recently all over the county. The murdered couple were missing their wallets, and an odd assortment of things were taken from the home. Police were on the lookout for vehicles that may be transporting stolen goods. The night of the murders, a truck was reported to police to have been speeding through residential neighborhoods in East Muskogee. Residents thought the truck was exceeding 100 miles an hour. County Sheriff Deputy Ralph Rose was one of the first to spot it in the area. He turned on his lights and to his surprise, they began to run. Faster and faster they went through these residential neighborhoods, but as quickly as it started, it abruptly ended. The officer detained the couple in the truck and placed them in the back of a patrol car. He then started to search their truck. Now, this officer is about to experience something you don't often see as a police officer, but this vehicle contained two bloodstained blindfolds, a man and woman's wallets, and a bunch of packed cut meat. This officer was paying attention to what was going on around him, and he knew that the wallets contained the IDs of the couple who were murdered earlier that day. And one of the other things that was reported stolen was a bunch of custom cut meat from a local butcher. Through the suspect's IDs, the officer identified the two suspects as Charles Troy Coleman and Janetta Coleman. When asked, they stated they were not married, despite the same last name, but they were dating. Turns out Janetta Coleman and Charles were brother and sister-in-law. Now to quote my wife, who's from Kansas... That's the most Oklahoma thing I've ever heard of. But don't worry, I informed her why it's so windy in Oklahoma, and she proceeded to not talk to me for the rest of the night. Now, a lot of things happened in a short amount of time, so we're going to kind of reiterate everything, kind of go over it all. Two people were brutally murdered during a robbery. Their bodies were left at the bottom of the stairway into a basement. The suspects were caught later on that same day with evidence that ties them to the scene. One thing that they didn't have, however, was the murder weapon. Now, little is detailed about this early on, but one of the best things at this point for police was they needed to find the murder weapon. This would set up a first-degree murder charge pretty well. They could seek it without it. But the Colemans could argue that they didn't have possession of the weapon, and it was obvious because on the same day, they were without it. Officers started combing the area around the murder scene. They walked the county roads, looked in grassy areas to see if the gun had been ditched. But after several days of searching, they came up empty-handed. It wasn't until police questioned Charles's brother, Dell Coleman, about the weapon. Dell knew that his brother was in a lot of trouble, and he, in fact, knew what happened to the shotgun because, well, he was the one that got rid of it. According to Dell, Charles came to him asking him to help him get rid of the shotgun. Dell, trying to be a good brother, agreed and took the shotgun to a bridge over Grand River. There he ditched not one, but two shotguns. The next day, the police found the weapons along the side of the river. It was at this time the police split up Charles and Janetta Coleman and started using them against each other. Janetta quickly confessed to her involvement in the robbery, but not the murders. She turned on Charles and in exchange for her testimony, she would not be charged with murder. 
Janetta would only be charged as a material witness and was let go. By April 22, 1979, the district attorney was ready to proceed with the trial of Charles Coleman. The prosecution brought the court the evidence tying the suspect to the crime. They also brought Janetta up to testify that she knew of the murders. She was able to testify that Charles left their home about 3.30 p.m. with his shotgun the day of the murders. Janetta stated she was not present when the murders took place, but she knew that Charles was. This set up what would have been a June trial. Typically, justice is never fast. Trials can suffer through delay after delay and can stretch on and on forever. But this one had a delay, but not one that you would expect. Now, working at a jail is no easy task. I speak from experience. I used to work in a county jail, one that was poorly built, horribly funded, and understaffed. If something happened while you were working, it was your fault. Never those in charge of the whole mess. So Muskogee Jail had an odd sort of a setup, and William Green, who was a trustee inmate, had thought of a way to escape. But he was in jail for a lesser charge, and he didn't really need to escape. Charles learned of this idea and used William to help put it to the test. So one day after visitation, the inmates were left alone in the visitation room. Charles had requested to speak to a minister. The guard who was assigned to these inmates left them in visitation for several hours after the visits were over. With Charles's help, William was able to get to the ceiling where he was able to open a hole in the poorly designed roof. Charles was able to crawl through the hole to the roof where he escaped. The trustee inmate then tried to hide the evidence of the escape. Now, Charles was a man on the run. He didn't know the area very well and he needed a car. So he slowly worked his way through a nearby neighborhood and found a house where the front door was unlocked. Checking, Charles could see a man sleeping on a sofa. Nearby were his pants. He slowly entered the home and grabbed the pants. He could hear the twinkling of keys in the pants so he knew that he had the keys to their car. He snuck back outside and then emptied the pockets. He left the pants on the front porch and took their car. Charles Coleman wasn't spotted until the next day when he was driving through Luther, Oklahoma. The officer pulled Charles over not knowing who he was and brought him over to his patrol car. He had him sit in the front seat and he pulled out his ticket book to start writing a ticket. It was then he saw the knife. Charles slashed the officer's throat and then grabbed the officer's service revolver. The officer fell out of the car and Charles came over and told him not to move. The officer froze and Charles handcuffed the officer and placed him in the back of the vehicle. Charles drove the officer a few miles from the scene where he stole the officer's shotgun and destroyed his radio. Luckily for the officer, the slash to the neck was not fatal. Now Charles made his way to Crossroads Mall in South Oklahoma City. He was spotted in the area looking for a car to steal. The one he chose was an abandoned car that had not yet been towed. Now Charles wasn't going to wait around in Oklahoma to get caught again. 
he decided that he would be headed back to California where he used to live. On his way, he was again pulled over by a sheriff's deputy in Tucson, Arizona. When the officer approached the vehicle, Charles caught him off guard and pulled a gun on him. The officer was then handcuffed and placed in the back of Charles's truck. He drove him a ways down the road and then kicked him out of the car. I'm guessing the thought here was he's going to let the officer go. He didn't want to really kill him. But he did, however, not want to get caught. And by letting the officer out of his vehicle several miles away from his car, he wouldn't be able to radio for help. Little did Charles know the police were in a helicopter watching what was going on and sending backup to arrest Charles. He was captured without incident. They quickly figured out who he was and they charged him with kidnapping and assault. Charles was now the suspect of another murder in Oklahoma. Another robbery gone wrong in Tulsa, Oklahoma resulted in the death of Russell Lewis Jr. This happened while Charles was on the run and after he slashed the throat of the officer and stole his gun. Now Charles was extradited back to Oklahoma where he was to stand trial. The trial was consisted of Charles Coleman's family testifying against him, Janetta, who was now dating Del Coleman, Charles's brother, yeah, I didn't tell my wife about this part. She testified to what she knew of, the murder and Charles's actions. Delphia Warren testified how they found their home robbed and finding her brother and sister-in-law dead in the basement. Then a ex-cellmate also testified against Charles and stated he often bragged about his many crimes. The defense tried to argue that the timetable that was presented made absolutely no sense. There was no way for Charles to break into the home and steal several items and then also commit these murders. The jury deliberated for two hours and then came back with a guilty verdict. The jury imposed the sentence of death. Charles then would be back in the courtroom less than a year later for the murder in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was believed that the gun that killed Russell Lewis Jr. was also the service revolver that was stolen from the officer that he slashed the throat of. The truck that Charles was driving in Arizona was registered to Lewis. That's the main thing that ties him to that particular murder. Again, the jury found Charles Coleman guilty and they again sentenced him to death. This was a political win for those who supported the death penalty. The state of Oklahoma had paused execution since 1966 and used cases like these as a reason why the judgment was needed. Charles Coleman was put to death by lethal injection in 1990. He was the first one to be put to death by lethal injection in the state of Oklahoma and the first one since the pause in executions. You know, I find this case absolutely amazing. It is almost textbook what a lot of police officers learn in what to do and what not to do. Uh, there were a lot of mistakes made, but also a lot of officers were not trained the same way that they're trained now. So, you know, bringing a person from a regular traffic stop and putting them in the front of your vehicle while you write a ticket, 
you know, that may not be the smartest thing, especially in a case like this, where Charles was able to gain the upper hand on the officer, still his gun, he slashed his throat, thank goodness he survived, he then used that gun to commit another murder. I mean, I would be devastated if I was that officer, knowing that that happened. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. That way, whenever we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Also, join us over on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Investigations. There, we, we have all kinds of memes and you know conversations going on. So definitely come over and check that out. Uh, we're always having a good time. Anyways, guys, I will see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.